Welcome to another edition of Dentalpreneur Secrets, and I am so excited for you today. We have an amazing guest, an amazing show, and on Dentalpreneur Secrets, we help you build an amazing life of significance so you can take care of the people you love, support the causes you care about, and really change the world for the better. And by the time you finish listening to this talk today that I'm just so excited about, you're going to really have a, a, an understanding and you're going to know that there's other ways to build an amazing dental practice. You're going to know that the management of people may not just be the best way to spend your time. You're going to have some insights into 12 tools of the participation age and how this can help you engage your team in making better decisions. But even more importantly, you're going to walk away feeling motivated to grow, learn, and do dentistry in another way. And our guest today, wow, I am so excited. It's Chuck Blakeman. And I can tell you that Chuck is the author of a number one rated business book in 2010 called Making Money is Killing Your Business. What a great title. And, and the other one, right? Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea, another top 10 business book. I could tell you that Chuck started and built eight businesses in the U.S. and internationally, and now he uses that experience to, to guide you, dentist, in making better choices. I could tell you that Mr. Blakeman has had customers from Microsoft to Apple to Eli Lilly. I could tell you a whole bunch of stuff, but what I really want to share with you is, is that Chuck is an entrepreneur at heart. He, he's an author. He's a business advisor. He's got a strong focus on, on self-management, but more importantly, He's done all these things without having gone to business school or any of that other kind of junk out there. So, Chuck, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's so good to be with you. Yeah, good to get to see you again. And so, thanks, you know, Tim. You know, business school, right? We were just kind of joking about that beforehand, and and you said that was a disadvantage. That would have been a disadvantage for you. Why is that? And 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 how do you think those things get in the way? Sure, it's a great question. Yeah, we, we have a lot of things backwards when it comes to the way we do things. We think that the, uh, we're supposed to be cognitive and learn uh, educationally how to do things. And experientially is a much better, better way to do it. Uh, Albert Einstein said, we've been given the gift of intuition and the faithful servant of cognitive thought, of rational thought. But we have created a society that worships the servant and has forgotten the gift. The gift is intuition. This is Albert Einstein. He was not a cognitive. He was an intuitive. And uh, he said, we've forgotten the gift. And another Albert Einstein quote, intuition is the highest form of human intelligence, not cognition. Cognition is a servant of intuition. And every, every scientist out there would say there's no possible way that Einstein could have come up with E equals MC squared when he did. There was just nothing leading anybody there. But he intuited it. And then they spent the next 30 years using the faithful servant of cognition to prove or disprove whether it was true. That's the correct order in how we should do business. And most of what we do in college is cognitive. And secondarily, most probably even more disadvantages that it's, it's stuff that everybody knew was true 20 years ago. They, they're teaching things that worked 20 years ago or never worked, but it's not being taught on the ground, in the trenches, where it actually needs to happen. So we're learning things in a cognitive way that need to be learned experientially. Wow. Now, now, how did you kind of start on this path, right? I mean, we could spend the entire show talking about what you just opened with. I mean, we, we could spend days on that. That That's is how right. important what you just said was. Yep. But how did you get started on that journey? And how did you kind of make that move to seeing that, that intuition is really what matters? 
Yeah. Well, I'm ADHD, uh, a little bit ADHD, uh, pretty significantly dyslexic. I'm left-handed. I'm right-brained. I went to music school. I didn't go to business school. Um, so I don't know any better. I didn't know that this isn't how you're supposed to do it. I didn't learn that there's a way to do business. And then I went out and tried to replicate what I was taught. I did what worked. And, uh, and as a result of being ADHD and dyslexic, one thing that didn't work for me was education. I graduated near the bottom of my high school class. They actually had me in the principal office the last day of school. Like I wasn't there. It was like a Charlie Brown movie. I'm looking at adults' knees, which is all you ever see in Charlie Brown movies. You never see the adult, just their knees. And, and they're talking about me like I'm not there as well. Should we let him graduate or not? I think, and they finally decided to let me graduate because I think they realized if they didn't, they'd have me for a whole nother year. So let's let him go. Let's let him get out of here. It took me 19 years to get a bachelor's degree. And during that time, uh, I went into the army to begin with because I thought, well, nobody's going to take me. I'm, I'm dumb. Uh, well, they didn't know what ADHD and dyslexic was back then. They knew what left-handed was, and they didn't like that either. So I, didn't, I just didn't fit. I wasn't popular. I didn't do sports. I was getting C's, D's, and F's. I got, I got kicked out of chemistry. I got kicked out of German. I got kicked out of art. How do you get kicked out of art? Uh, uh, so, you know, I, so I had to find another way. And I learned that actually uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't being given a fair shake, that uh, the, the, real, the highest form of human, human intelligence really is intuition. And intuition is not a feeling. The cognitives want you to believe that. It is not a feeling. If you look at the traditional definition of intuition, it is all the past thinking, feeling, and doing that you've done in your life that leads you to a moment in time where you can make a snap judgment or snap decision. You know, if I do this, this is probably going to happen. I could not intuit E equals MC squared because I had not spent decades being a physician or a, a, a physicist, but I can intuit things that, uh, that Albert Einstein couldn't because of my background. And so we need to, we need to pay attention to those things. Uh, there was a fellow in 2011, a French guy who did a study called uh, entrepreneurial intuition a cognitive approach. He just couldn't help himself. He was a cognitive. And he studied 500 entrepreneurs and said, what makes you guys successful? What a surprise. The number one thing he found was that they, they found they had hunches. They had intuitive hunches where they didn't have all the, the boxes filled out and all the lines understood. And they moved quickly on their intuition. And then secondarily, that, would, that by itself, by the way, is chaos if that's all you do. I, we all know people who just move on their intuition and just run into wall after wall. The second thing they did fills it out. As soon as they started moving, they started using cognition as their faithful servant to ask themselves, how's this going? Should I turn left? Should I turn right? So they moved quickly and they used cognition to keep them going. And I've learned that over the years. While I was in the army, I started my first business. And I thought, well, huh. Maybe I got something to offer in the world. And off we went. So it was actually 12 businesses in eight industries on four continents. Uh, and uh, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm a great company. I learned decades later that something like 85% of most uh, highly uh, entrepreneurial people are ADHD. So Richard Branson, I'm in, I'm in good company. I don't mind being in the same, in the same disability class as Richard yeah. Branson. <laughs> Not too bad for a kid who got kicked out of art. Not too bad. Yeah, we done okay. 
Yeah, and I love what you talk about, you know, when you mentioned kind of intuition is the summing up of, of all your experiences yeah. so that you can make those decisions quickly. And, and you know, I, I share with dentists all the time, you know, especially new ones out of school, they say, well, how do I know what the right practice to buy is? And I tell them, go look at a whole bunch, right? Just look yeah. at them, look at them, look at them, look at them. And then all of a sudden that right one's going to come up and you'll instinctively know, oh, this is the one I've been looking for because you've looked at a thousand bad ones. And you know, that's so true. And it's, it's, it's not the way we do things. We try to cognate it. Give me a formula. I've uh, been investing in real estate in the recent years. Before I invested in real estate, I looked at not just looked at, I probably looked at 150 properties, but I, I did numbers on maybe 75 properties, maybe 200 that I looked at. And I did thorough numbers on each one of those. I built spreadsheet after spreadsheet. I put in uh, offers. I, I did all kinds of things before I actually landed my first one because I had no background. I needed to build that experience so that when I saw the one that, was, that I should buy, I knew it almost instantly. And then I ran the numbers to make sure that my, my intuition was actually accurate. Because sometimes we think our feelings is our intuition. Sometimes we think our experience is our intuition. And sometimes we think our knowledge is our intuition. And intuition is the accumulation of all three of those things. Yeah. Now, now you know, you may be a dentist listening to this and thinking, well, how can I use my intuition to treat a mouth and, and run my practice? And right, that, that's clinical stuff. That, that's not intuition, is it, Chuck? Oh, absolutely. It's intuitive. You, every dentist will say they, they, they look at somebody's mouth and say, huh, I wonder where this is going to lead me. Or I got an idea of where this is going in three seconds, five seconds, um, just based on what they see in the conditions of the mouth. I bet I'm going to find, and then they have a list of three or four things, and sure enough, they find those things. That's intuitive yep. based on where you've come from. And it's very valuable. And you should listen to that, not by itself. Intuition, again, is, is uh, uh, always uses the faithful servants. There's three of them, in, uh, cognition, affection, which is feeling, and activation, which is doing. So think, feel, do. Those yeah. are the three aspects of the mind. And those are the faithful servants of intuition. I got a hunch. Well, all right. You cannot go. You cannot just play out your hunch. You have to think about it. You have to do. You have to do something. Where's your data? Where's your Where's your Where's your analysis? Where's your data? And then, how do you feel about that when you're done? That is actually science. Science have studied the brain, and gee, what a surprise! We actually are not cognitive to begin with. We are affective. Anything that comes at us, any stimulus comes at us, the first thing we do is we right brain it. They can, they can train the, they can look at the neuropaths. It starts in the right brain. I feel something first. And then my right brain throws it over to the left and says, Hey, tell me, tell me why I feel this way. And then the left part of the brain analyzes and says, Oh yeah. Okay. Let me throw that back over to the right side and say, here's why you're feeling that. And, uh, and you know, you, you don't need to feel fear because here's why, or you know what you should run, <laughs> but we start with the uh, the intuitive side, the the, the uh, feeling side of our brain, which is strongly intuitive. Yeah, right. And, and that's not what is is taught in the dental school. No. It's not what is taught in college, right? No. It, it, it's the cognitive side. And right. and so so how do you see that having an impact on the the organizations that the the doctors are running on their businesses and and on their staff and on, on their people? Well, intuition is much more human than data. Because again, intuition is the accumulation of the data, 
That's the knowledge and the experience, the doing, and the feeling. How do I feel about that? And real good practices, real good businesses, they're all based first and foremost on all three of those things all at once, all the time. So we have to practice all three, all at once, all the time. There is no separating think, feel, do. You cannot do it. If you're reading a book, you are thinking and feeling, and you're also doing. If you're riding a bicycle, you're thinking, feeling, and doing. So we have to we have to assent to that and realize that's really the magic in any business and in any dental practice is to combine those things. And that leads us to humanity. It leads us to relationship, not just data. Data becomes the faithful servant. But intuition has us saying, you know, I got a hunch. Nobody, so, so where does that lead us? For instance, the data shows, along with the experience and the feeling, that Emotional intelligence trumps uh, a high IQ 90% of the time. Here's the data. 90% of the time, average emotional intelligence, average empathy and emotional intelligence will make someone more successful than high IQ 90% of the time. Here's another piece of data. 90% of people who are successful have high emotional intelligence. 90% of people who are low, uh, not successful have low emotional intelligence. What's the data point for us on this? What's the cognitive data point for us? You shouldn't hire anybody who doesn't have high emotional intelligence. It's the first thing, other than culture, it's the first thing that we look at, we test for high empathy and high emotional intelligence. I can't think of a, of a, uh, a profession in the world that needs more high emotional intelligence than dentistry. Can't think of one. Yeah, very truly. And you certainly know just a thing or two about this. In fact, you have a new book just launching today, you know, talking about rehumanizing the, the workplace, right? The participation age is here. And so, you know, talk to us a little bit about the title, right? What's behind rehumanizing the, the workplace? Well, the, the subtitle, Rehumanizing the Workplace is the title. And in parentheses, the subtitle is By Giving Everybody Their Brain Back. And when I say giving them their brain back, it's not the cognitive part of their brain, it's their whole brain. Think, feel, do, think, feel, do all the time, all at once, um, all, all three of them all at once, all the time. So how do we do that? Why do we need to do that? Well, we just can, we can look at the data. Data is our friend. Data helps us support our intuitive hunch. Here's an intuitive hunch. Business, uh, business doesn't work the way that we have designed it. And then if you want to check that out and see if the data supports it, go on the internet and, and, and Google the idea or research the idea of does management work? You'll get approximately somewhere between two and 10 million responses and all of them to say, here's what's wrong with management and here's how to fix it. An endless stream of people who want to fix management. I call it putting lipstick on a pig. Rather than actually looking at the, the concept of management saying, is the whole concept broken? We've continued to, to try and fix it for decades. So uh, what's the data on this? How do we know it's broken? Uh, uh, Deloitte did a, a survey of 10,000 businesses. They do it every year. And for three years running, the number one thing that all 10,000 of those businesses wanted to do, well, not 92% not of them for three years running, they all wanted to change the way business was structured. And they wanted to, and they said, the way that we think 
the way we're intuiting that would work better is if we dropped the concept of a hierarchy. 92% of businesses, Tim, intuitively said, we think the best way to do this is drop hierarchy and reorganize around teams, networks of teams that are released to take action without hierarchy. 92% of businesses could not describe to you what that even means. They just know that it's the right way to go. And then the data supports it. 30, only 30% 30 of people at work are engaged. The other 70% are phoning it in. They're just coming for eight to five and doing as little as possible to get through the day. Uh, 50, somewhere between 50 and 65% before COVID, when things were killing it, 50 to 65% of people had their resumes out. And 84% of people at work have not found something they love doing. That's in a wholesale indictment of the way that we work. Let's just do the first one. We don't even need to do the second two. If you had a machine that was 30% functional, would you be okay with that? If your CT scanner was 30%, you know, seven out of 10 times this thing doesn't work, but what are you gonna do? Everybody else's CT scanner works the same way. That's how we treat people. You know, three out of 10 people are really engaged, but that's just the way people are. Seven out of 10 aren't, but you know, every practice is like that. No, they aren't. I can show you practices who have embraced the participation age, given everybody their brains back, and they have 100% engagement. It's absolutely incredible. So right, 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 mind-blowing. Like you said, right, if we had machines in our office, right, if you're a CAT scan, right, if you're, if you're cone beam, you would send it back. You'd say this thing yes. doesn't work. You know, the, apps, the, the, front desk, the front desk software, it only works 30% of the time, but, you know, hang in there. We, we'll get you in. Yeah, no, right. We would be sending this stuff back left and right, but yet we accept it in business. And yeah. it, it's so strange. And so, you know, when we talk about giving people their, their brains back, what do we want to give them their brains back to, to do? Yeah, well, we want work has been dehumanized because people cannot make decisions. For over two centuries, people feel dehumanized and therefore disengaged because we haven't dealt with the real cause of why work doesn't work. It's, it's really about the fact that we make decisions, the few make decisions for everyone else. You want to be intuitive, you want to be cognitive, either one or both. What makes us human? I studied that. Well, what makes us human, first of all, is awareness. We know that we're mortal. We're going to die. Most animals don't have that, that problem. They sleep well at night because they don't think about that. And, this, and that awareness this is, is a big piece of that. The second piece is creativity. We will wade through the creek once or twice, and then we'll build a bridge over it. Meanwhile, the animals spend the next 10,000 years wading through the creek. <laughs> we're just, we're going to solve that problem. We're creative. We can't help ourselves. How to get to work. I'm going to go to work a different way if this one doesn't work. Cre accounting is a creative problem. Welding is a creative. Creativity is nothing more, nothing less than a series of decisions to come up with a better way to do something. Michelangelo walked around a block of marble. This is his story. He walked around a block of marble and started chipping away at it. And he basically wanted to chip away everything that didn't belong there. And David popped up. Creativity is nothing more, nothing less than a series of decisions. That's really important, Tim, because then we have to ask ourselves, if that's what makes us uh, human, what makes us adult? What makes us different as adults than children? One thing, fancy term for it is agency of responsibility. The reality of that is the ability to make decisions. 
I'll never forget the ice cream I bought my first weekend as in college. And I put it in my freezer and I froze halfway closing the freezer. And I opened it again. I stared at the ice cream and a big smile on my face. And I said to myself, I get to eat this anytime I want. And as I was closing the, the refrigerator, I froze in place. I opened it again. I said, oh, no, I get to eat this anytime I want. <laughs> Agency of responsibility that separates us from children. What's the one thing the overwhelming majority of people are not allowed to do at work? Make choices for themselves. Make decisions. Yeah. Make decisions. Yeah. I'm an adult at home. I can buy a house. I can get married. I can decide a career path. There's all huge things I get to decide because I'm an adult. But as soon as I cross the threshold of this practice, I, I check my brain at work because I'm no longer allowed to be creative, intuitive, and make decisions. I'm here to be a human doing, yeah. not a human being. And then the dentist says, I don't understand why people aren't engaged. Well, right. And this is so true, right? When, when you've got that hierarchical structure and you've got things coming down from the top, they're telling people at the bottom, here's what you're empowered to do, which is very, very little. And it leads to absolute frustration for your customers, right? I, yeah. I recently had a situation where, you know, Big mess happened. And I'm talking to people who are unempowered to do anything. And, and I knew that. And they, of course, say, hey, this call's recorded. I said, great. I hope you share it with your supervisors. I, I said, it's not fair to you to have to deal with someone who's upset like me about a problem that you've got zero power to solve. I said, that is not fair to you that you've got zero ability to actually solve this issue. Because the right, the hierarchy instead of empowering the team to say, you know what? Oh, you're you're right. I see the issue. Let's get that fixed. And, and so it creates messes in organizations. But we you know we came by this honestly because uh, if you study the history of leadership versus management, we need leadership, but we don't need management. People should not be managed. We should manage stuff. We should lead people. And we've conflated the two things to the point where leadership organizations can't even tell you the difference. We wouldn't have two words if there wasn't a difference. They're very different things. And, and, and I think that's, that's important to pause on. Let, let, let's bifurcate that real quick. Yeah. So what is leadership and what yeah. is management? Well, if you look at the history of leadership, you actually cannot find the etymology or, or the history of leadership because it's organic. What you can find is conditions under which it arises. And the conditions under which a leadership arises is choice. People get to choose. How did Mahatma Gandhi become the leader of, China, of India? He had no power. In fact, he didn't even grow up in India. Do you realize? He left India when he was 19 and he didn't come back until he was 42. The dude had no history there. How in God's name did this guy end up in charge? It's because he spoke and somebody followed. And then he spoke again and somebody else followed. Leaders have followers. If you look back and nobody's following, it's because you're out for a walk. You're not a leader. Management is entirely different. You can actually find the history of management. It, the first mention of management is in Hammurabi's time, five, almost 5,000, about 4,000 years ago, uh, relative to Hammurabi's code. And he's talking about slavery. If you have people who don't want to be there, you have to manage them. And that's the first mention of management. And management comes from slavery into serfdom, into military, through military, into the industrial factory system, from the factory into dentistry. 
So we have uh, we have a history of management, and it starts with slavery, and it's and the assumption is people don't want to be here. And then the dentist looks at this and says, you know, I think people aren't, and nobody does this on cognitively. They do it just kind of assumptively. I'm not going to say people are stupid and lazy. I'm just going to say I'm smarter and more motivated. I went to dental school. And so my job is to be the smartest, most motivated person here. And if you have, if you, if you have a, a, a group of slaves or a group of, of people at work who you make the assumption they are either stupid or lazy or both, there is only one solution to that. You find the rare uh, self-motivated uh, smart person and you put them in charge of the stupid ones or the lazy ones, and thus management was born. That is the operative assumption. Frederick Winslow Taylor in 1911 wrote a paper called Scientific Management, and the foundation of that management was two assumptions. People are stupid and people are lazy. Quote from the paper, people are so stupid they more resemble an ox than any other type. You want to know where the term dumb as an ox came from? That paper. <laughs> the second thing is people are lazy. They will only work so hard as to not get fired is the quote from the work, book. If you believe that, then there's only one way to fix it. Find people to stand over them with a whip and make them work. And thus management was born. Is there any reason why we have this bifurcation of, of labor versus management? It's an oppositional thing to begin with. In 1960, Frederick, Frederick, or I'm sorry, uh, Douglas McGregor wrote a book called The Human Side of Enterprise. And he postulated theory X, theory Y. Let's take this Taylor thing and see if it's true. Theory X, people are stupid and lazy. Theory Y, people are smart and motivated. And then he looked at companies within the very same profession who had those two different assumptions. The leaders of the company said, yeah, oh, yeah, people are stupid and lazy. And the other uh, companies, oh, no, people are smart and motivated. And then he looked at the results. Guess what the surprise was? In any company where the leaders thought people were stupid and lazy, all 300 of the people there were stupid and lazy. In the companies where people were smart and motivated, all 300 people were smart and motivated. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy, and we make it come true. You get to choose. Wow. What are your people? What are your people like? Are they stupid and lazy? And you don't even have to switch out the people, Tim. I could go on and on about the examples where you don't have to switch out anybody. You just have to switch out your mindset and then require that people no longer act stupid and lazy. And they wow. will. Wow. Right. What, what a transformational shift in the way of thinking about your, your practice and your employees and the people you engage with every single day. Right. And I love that, that distinction and kind of taking the path because we really have dehumanized people, right? We've taken their humanity away yeah. and made them slaves. And right. What a terrible, terrible thing to do. And that's what I love about the, the new work that you've just put out, right? Rehumanizing the, the workplace. And, and, and you make it so simple, right? You go through there, probably don't have time for all 12 tools today, but, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, right. As a dentist, right. You're listening to this. You're thinking, oh my gosh, I've been thinking this way, right? So step one, right? Adjust your mindset and realize my people are smart and motivated. Well, yeah. Then what do I do, Chuck? Well, that, and that is, that is the first 12. The first tool of the 12 is your belief system. What do you believe as a business? Do you believe people are stupid and lazy? Do you believe that work exists in order to make money? Or do you believe people is, uh, work exists to make meaning? Those are two very different polar opposites in the way we believe. Do we believe that uh, we exist to destroy the competition? Do we exist to add value in the world around us? Polar opposites. So there's five or six fundamental business beliefs 
that if you believe people are stupid and lazy or you believe people are smart and motivated, you end up in an entirely different place. So first thing is you have to go through your five or six business beliefs and get those straight and figure that out. That's, that's tool number one. Tool number one, no, number two is what we call leader, leader. Uh, actually, to, uh, tool number two, before leader, leader, sorry, tool number two is what we call the mission-centered practice. In most organizations, more, most practices, it's a manager-centered centered practice. Here's what happens. They, the, the dentist hires or builds a practice. They buy something and they build it. There's three people. They can manage that. There's four. They, they manage that. There's five. It starts to get hard. By the time there's seven or eight people, they're really tired of managing these stupid and lazy people. And they never say that. I'm just more smart and motivated. I heard a dentist say when someone said, why do we do that? The dentist said, because I went to dental school and you didn't. Well, that's going to turn my brain off very quickly. But we don't, you know, most aren't, aren't that harsh about it. It's just I'm tired of managing these people because they actually think they have to. And the people respond to that and say, hey, this is nice. I get to come to work and turn my brain off because that guy's going to tell me what to do. I'll buy in. And now we have a codependent relationship. Codependence is very exhausting. So what do we do? We hire a manager to be codependent. I don't want to be codependent. So I'll hire somebody to be codependent. The classic, man, the classic uh, uh, definition of codependence doing for others what they could or should do for themselves. That's what management is all about. So we hire someone to do that. And what we really need to do is be mission-centered. A mission-centered practice is, is focused on the result we will get our, our people. What's the result we want to get our patients? That is our boss. That's my boss as a dentist. That's your boss at the front desk. That's your boss in the lab. It's everybody's boss. We all serve at the pleasure of the boss. If you ever see me as the dentist doing anything that does not serve our mission statement, you have the right and the responsibility to call me for on it. And we'll do that with each other. That one thing right there, second tool flattens the organization. Now it's not about who's getting what promotion or what department is more important than the other. We all exist for one function, one reason only. Let's figure out how to get this mission done. And then let's divide up the roles and responsibilities to do that. That's number two. Then number three is leader, leader. And leader, leader is really a very simple, very brave concept, but it's the idea that everybody should be a leader. When you think of a leader, Tim, uh, or as you think of people, how people would respond to this, I go to a practice and I say, okay, I want, uh, I want everybody to write down two or three examples of a leader, either a human being that you know that's a leader or traits of a leader. And guess what they come up with? Mahatma Gandhi, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, um, guy on a white horse out front, motivator, visionary, uh, incredible uh, speech writer, uh, speech talker, that is the rarest form of leadership. And it's the one that we celebrate the most, which is a shame. What if you could be a leader by being something, by doing something, by relating? Here's a, here's a much better definition of leadership. Leadership is any act, any act that, that improves the life, situation, or performance of another individual any act that improves the life, situation, or performance of an individual. If that was our definition of leadership, who can act or who can lead? Uh, we've just empowered everyone. Anybody, yeah. I could be a friend. I could be a mentor and lead. I can clean out the microwave and somebody else can watch me do that and say, you know, you weren't seeing that any, I, I, you didn't know anybody caught you doing that. I caught you doing that. And that motivates me to do better 
you're my leader to, for that moment. Yeah. You're better at, you're better at patient acquisition than I am. Lead me in how to do that better. It's a, it's an incredible experience to get 15 people in a practice together and have them sh- talk to each other about how you lead me. And you better have some Kleenex boxes around because people are going to say, I had no idea I had that impact. I didn't know I could lead. I thought I had to be really articulate and fancy and all that other not know. Hmm. So leader, leader. And how does that work? Uh, uh, David Marquet was a colonel, was, was not a colonel, he was a captain on a, a Navy submarine. He inherited the worst rated Navy submarine running three years in a row, worst rated submarine in the whole entire US Navy. In one year, he turned it into the best. And here's the kicker, Tim. He did it with the, the same 134 people that had made it the worst for three years running. He, didn't, he wasn't able to switch out anybody. What he did was he just stopped uh, talking to them as if they were stupid and lazy. And he called it, he called it intentional leadership. He got them all together and said, okay, I know this goes against Navy regulations, but I'm going to stop telling you what to do. Because you see managers tell leaders ask. That's one of the massive differences. I'm not going to tell you what to do anymore. You're going to come to me and you're going to say, or you're going to come to anybody that you want to involve in your decision. You're going to say, I intend to do. You're not going to come and say, what should I do? Not allowed to do that anymore. You're going to come and say, here's what I figured out. I intend to do that. And my job is not going to tell you what to do. My job is to ask you hard questions. Well, have you thought about this? What about that? How does that work with the rest of the practice? And that's on, on that one thing. He changed the entire boat. And in one year, they became the best boat in the Navy on that one thing. He distributed the decision-making. That is the core practice of the participation age. Distributed decision-making. Everyone on that, everyone on that boat was now required, allowed and required to be an adult and start making decisions, not in a vacuum. That's where people think this is chaos. Clearly, you need to go to other people and say, here's what I intend to do. And then those other people will speak to it and say, well, we've got some knowledge we can add to that. And hey, we don't like that decision yet. Keep trying. Yeah. Come up with something right. else. So, so same crew, same people. Same crew, same people. Right. Implementing some of these principles. Yeah. 12 months later, a completely different situation, right? And, yeah. and the same is true for your dental practice. So often, right, a, a, as the, the owner of that organization, Right, you think, oh, I got to replace this person because they're not working well, or I got to get rid of that person, or mm-hmm. I, and some of that may be true sometimes. But right, if if you can do that on a submarine, you can certainly do that in your dental practice. Yeah. So one, uh, you know, let's give examples. Uh, there's a, a practice in Delray Beach, Florida. It's one of the largest single location practices in America. They have 55 people in one location. It's a 12 to 14 million dollar year practice, one location. They have no manager. I'm just going to let that settle for a second. There is no manager for these 55 people. The gut feeling is that must be chaos. Must be chaos and anarchy reigns. Well, remember I said leadership is important, but management is not. They do have one person whose major responsibility, it's not her only responsibility, but her major responsibility is to lead. And what that means is she asks hard questions. And she, she gives, she casts vision and she sees who wants to do that. And how did she become the leader? People said, she's the person we want to follow. Leaders have followers, managers have reports. And so she was elected to lead the organization because they said, you're the one who has the best vision for where we need to go. She's not a dentist. She was a dental assistant. She never went to college. 
She leads a $14 million a year organization because that's who they want to follow. And, uh, and, and they, uh, it's an incredible story of success. The first year they had her in place, they incentivized people. They took away bonuses and they started incentivizing certain things. They saved $500,000 to the bottom line without changing their revenue. And it, there's 100% engagement. They don't have any front desk. They don't have a, a designated person who sits at the front desk. Can you imagine this, 55 people? I mean, they got you know two or three people coming in the door every minute. There's nobody at the front desk, Tim. Absolutely amazing. Wow. Everybody, the, the hygienists are, are responsible for getting their own people. The, 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 the people in the, in the operatories are responsible for getting their own people and walking them through that. And everybody, you know, everybody has very clear roles and responsibilities. It's not chaos and not anarchy. It's just the opposite. Much clearer roles, much clearer responsibility. But everybody has a brain and the thing functions in, in an amazing way. I could go on and give you multiple examples like that in dentistry where there's, there may be a leader, but there are no people managers absolutely incredible right and what a new way of thinking about your your practice and, and your people and, and the way you you help them achieve great things to, to me this is a lot more fun because everyone wins not just people at the top right you you are empowering people to use their their brains to make good choices the the dentist who owns the practice was managing everybody and managing the manager and now he started a he started a, a hygiene school he has a, another practice. He's starting a DSO. He has time for his kids. Uh, I can go on and on about the practices where the dentist in Chicago worked for five days a week, four days clinically, and the, the fifth day plus half a Saturday running the business. And now he works two days clinically and doesn't run the practice at all and makes more money, takes home instead of 300000 he takes home $450,000 a year because he gave everybody their brain back. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely powerful. So, you know, we're coming up to the end of our time here, but, but in rehumanizing the, the workplace, I also enjoy that it, it comes with a toolkit to, to help you make some choices and move through these. And so talk to us a little bit, you know, because we can certainly read a book, but, but how can we use that toolkit to, to make our practices even better? Yeah. So this is a toolkit book. This is not everybody. The research shows everybody's tired of incredibly insightful books that don't tell you how to do something. You know, these great books, these incredible books that people put out over the decades that were just mind changing, you know, they, they were, they were, uh, 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 they were books that caused us to change our entire paradigms, but they didn't tell us how to do things. I wrote one like that. It's called Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea. It's about the participation age and why all of these things need to happen. Or, and so that was the, that was sort of the why of the participation age. This is the how. The rehumanizing book is the how. There's 12 tools that we need to have. Every great company that does this and every great practice and, and puts these 12 tools in place. And so I, I walk through, there's about 16, 18 chapters, but 12 of the chapters are well, chapter after chapter. Here's how to do this tool. Here's how we did it. Here's how other practices do it. Here's the spreadsheets. Here's the, here's the, the examples. Here's the diagrams. Here's the one, two, three step. How to put together a kudos program where you're not managing the kudos program. There's no manager managing the kudos program. The people manage their own per, uh, uh, stat, uh, team member recognition program. Here's five steps on how to do that. Here's examples of companies and practices that have done it. So that book is about how to make this stuff happen. It's a, it's a toolkit, exactly what you called it. 
Yeah, and I think that's so important because because I know you know any of us who have reached a, a certain level of success in life, we've read all the books, we we know all the stuff, and you reach a point where you're like, I don't need another book. I, I need a how to guide. Like, what yep. do I do? Right, right. We we can pick up on mind shift, you know, shifts real quick, and it's like, okay, I get that. But now, what do I actually show up and do? And, and so I love the value that you, that you're just bringing th- to everyone through this book. So super, super great stuff. How can people find you? How can we get in yeah. touch with you, Chuck? So they can find me really simply. If you try and make these things easy, chuckblakeman.com or chuck at cranksetgroup.com, crankset, C-R-A-N-K-C-E or S-E-T, like crankset on a bicycle, cranksetgroup.com. Uh, and the book just launched in, in November, depending on when this podcast come on, November 18th is when we launched. And uh, go on Amazon and just look for rehumanizing the workplace by giving everybody their brain back or just rehumanize Blakeman. That's all you have to put in there and it'll pop right up. And I'll put links below so you can, you can find it. I would highly encourage you to, to check this out. Now, Dennis can also work with you one-on-one in three different mastermind groups too, so that they can work together with their peers implementing us. Share a little bit about what you've got going on there. Yeah, we have an organization that focuses on rehumanizing the workplace and on helping dentists get off the treadmill uh, where they're making 250000 or 300000 a year and working five days a week, get them down to one or two days a week or whatever they want uh, and making more money. So the question is, how do you make more money in less time? Well, the answer to that is to figure out how to, to re-engage everybody at work and rehumanize them so that you don't have to do all the work. So we, we, we do that. Uh, and I do that personally. I always keep four or five clients. I tend to have uh, room for one. We, you know, we, we don't think there's, uh, it makes sense for us to have clients forever. So we teach them these 12 tools. And we teach them other things from the other things that I've learned, the, the other books. And uh, we get out of the way. We practice what we preach. And then we have other people who are involved in both dentistry and other things. But my focus is dentistry. Absolutely. Well, hey, I, I know I certainly have a, a new way of thinking about our, our companies and, and why managing people. I don't want to manage anyone anymore. I want to lead people and, and certainly have some insights into those 12 tools that you provided. And, and if you're listening, you absolutely should feel motivated to get out there to learn, grow and, and do dentistry in a different way. This is how you build that amazing life of significance for, for yourself, for your company, the people you love, causes you care about and make that impact on the world. And so Chuck, thank you for, for sharing so generously with us, uh, your insights, your, your knowledge and uh, absolute joy to talk to you. Well, this was fun. Let's, uh, let's uh, rehumanize the workplace. Let's give everybody their brain back. Absolutely. So I usually see get out there and make it a great day, but I'm going to say get out there and rehumanize the workplace. <laughs> Works for me. All right.